hey, if you're doing the South by Southwest EDU thing this year, Wednesday, March 8th, 2023, come by and say hi. I'm doing a session with an incredible group of colleagues. We're talking about research storytelling for the digital age. It's going to be a recorded episode that we are performing live that afternoon, Wednesday, March 8th. Again, swing by and see us. It'll be myself, Kylie Pepler, Elizabeth Bishop, Sankita Shrestova. It, it's a pretty star, uh, star-studded panel. <laughs> Stop by and see us. Hey, I wrote um, two haiku for you instead of um, my regular pitch. Uh, here's number one. The five-star review tells the machine, hey, look here. This is worth playing. That was the first one. Second one is, I'd like to keep up this making content for you. Five stars, a big hug. I hope you'll go back wherever you downloaded the show and, um, you know, give a high five. Help us keep producing episodes. This is the second episode of a couple I've done celebrating the series of books produced by Stanford D School. My best description of the books would be to call them handbooks for anyone interested in the tools of doing contemporary creative work in the digital age. Creative work to me is just about any work in the digital age. And while too many educators don't self-describe as creatives, I don't think anyone who's witnessed the work would agree that it's not when it's done by a master. Whether you're a classroom educator, a designer, maybe you're in philanthropy, maybe not. This is a unique piece of work that, as I say in the interview, might be equally useful to the six-figure software engineer as it is to educator leaders or even students themselves. Meet Sam and Tunde. Uh, my name is Sam Seidel, co-author of Creative Hustle, and co-author of Hip Hop Genius 2.0 and Director of K-12 Strategy and Research at the Stanford D School. I am Ola Tunde Shabomahin, CEO, Lead Servant of Street Code Academy and co-author of Creative Hustle. Meeting them made me want to take their class of the same name. There are a few scholars out there who use the term hustle as a way to describe a creative way of living. And to me, whether you agree or not, I think hustle is the hard-to-test and credential ingredient that I hear almost every industry struggle to name, but easily point to as most important when describing the skills needed for the present and future of work. Go find yourself a copy of the book at dschool.stanford.edu slash books. Enjoy my talk with Tunde and Sam. This is no such thing a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. First thing I want to ask you guys is not everybody knows about the D school. So can somebody just talk about the D school and, and tell us why it's a special place? D school is a center of innovation to me. It's the center of innovation. And I look at, you know, Silicon Valley as this powerful place of innovation, but at the heart of Silicon Valley is Stanford university. 
Stanford University is pushing the edge on health and medicine and humanities and law and undergraduate studies and liberal arts. You know, it's, it's, it's the center of all that, pushing all that. At the center of all of those departments and, you know, thought areas is the D school, this interdisciplinary area that says, how do we um, think about things in brand new ways and give, give uh, learning a chance to evolve and develop? And uh, so they bring people together. They bring thoughts together. They, you know, in a fun, innovative way. And that's that's design thinking. That's the D school to me. Uh, Sam, give the official one. <laughs> I think that's good. You said you get you in trouble or something. I might get you a job as like a communications person. Yeah, so you better school. watch I mean, out. I think I think that's a that's a beautiful way of talking about it. I really don't even have that much to add to it. Uh, you know, I think um, interdisciplinary institute within the university. Uh, as Tunde said, pulling students and faculty from all across the university and even beyond. I mean, we're talking about a book that we wrote that came out of teaching a class together um, as uh, one person who's full time at Stanford and one who's not. So that's that really does embody a lot of what the D school is about. And it's about um, encouraging creative confidence, creative courage uh, to everyone who steps through the door or the virtual door, um, which is how we are engaging with a lot of folks these days. Here's the thing, though, is I've read Creative Hustle. Um, a lot of these ideas are are uh, familiar and ones that I absolutely am a am a subscriber believer in. And there's like a kind of a tone to Creative Hustle. I mean, Hustle is in the title. That's like kind of punk. Like some of this is pretty, pretty progressive stuff. And I don't know that everybody thinks of Stanford as being punk. So like how, how is D school the right place for a book and a class about Hustle? There's a, um, what is it? What would you call it? There's a ceremony that happens at the end of a lot of D school, um, Train, like kind of trainings or learning experiences because we don't give ha, have not traditionally given diplomas or certificates to folks who come and do a learning experience with us. Um, but we have done this pinning ceremony where folks receive a special D school pin. And there's a whole lot of kind of um, ceremony around that sometimes. But one of the lines that popped into my head as you just made that point about the punkness is this line that gets used sometimes in the pinning ceremony around, um, I think it's something like by the power vested in us by other by other wayward thinkers and doers. So just mm. that phrase like wayward thinkers and doers mm. or thinkers and makers, I think speaks to the kind of ethos you're talking about. And and it's interesting too to um hear you say that word punk mark. I think we often think of it as kind of a hip hop sensibility. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I learned in writing my first book, Hip Hop Genius, was that punks really like folks who identified as punk were coming to me and saying, everything you're saying in here about what hip hop culture is, about creative resourcefulness in the face of limited resources and resisting oppression and, you know, fighting the power and, you know, putting together culture and art and community in these ways, they were like, that's punk. Hmm. And so for over 10 years now, I've been kind of studying and learning about all the ways in which hip hop culture and punk culture um, are similar and even interconnected and just read a really interesting book about reggae culture and punk culture in Great Britain. Um, well, the book was about Bob Marley's Exodus album, but it got into talking about the similarities and, and connections in those cultures. So anyway, uh, 
I think you're picking up on something. I think we've thought of it maybe more in the in the hip hop realm, but as I've learned, there's a lot of overlap, interconnection, and and cross pollination there. Yeah. Well, if punk is a, I see punk as a philosophy. There are punk artists who I've loved over time, but like, if I had to pick, if somebody asked me, what are your favorite punk artists? Chuck D would be one of my my top mm. top. So, I, right. may, maybe inappropriately, I tend to think of the two in a very similar um similar way i'm sure hip-hop educators would um you know like yourselves would would uh you know correct me about where where we can use those two interchangeably and where we can't i find it super interesting and i don't i don't think i would ever try to correct you or anyone i'm still learning i just i just never anticipated that when i put out hip-hop genius and it kept coming up That's as I traveled the world and talked about that work. So um, I'm just really fascinated by it and I appreciate you raising it here. Yeah. Well, um, so it, it brings up a question for me of like, I wasn't sure when you are reading this book, which you uh, declare is not a self-help book. And I'm curious why it's not a self-help book, but um I, so my question to you is, A, why is it not a self-help book? And who'd you write it to? Like, who's the audience that as you were writing, you were thinking that this is who I'm speaking to right now? The theme I'm hearing about the questions of punk and hip hop and and speak to the audience question, which is so hard for me to answer, because what we found in the making of Creative Hustle was that so many of us resonate with these same ideas. Right. The class was um, started. Be, or the book started from a class that was started because both Sam and I wanted to blend communities. We wanted to, you know, as opposed to something that says, hey, we live in the Silicon Valley. There's an East Palo Alto and there's a Palo Alto. And most of the times we differentiate these communities because one has resources and one traditionally was left out of resources. One is a community of color. One traditionally has been, a, um, you know, a community um, you know, of, of, of majority uh, white Americans. And so now you have this dichotomy that you say most people are going to be different. And we said, well, no, how do we bring these communities together and share what is the common, you know, ambition of all these folks or the common path between these folks, if you will. And so to me, the community question of who this book is for is interesting because we've had people across ages, across the spectrum, all speak to like, Yo, I'm all trying to create a unique path in the world. I'm all I'm I'm trying to identify my gifts. I'm trying to move to my goals. We've had, I mean, I remember Sam just sent me a message about a medical professional who's seasoned in their field, who this book really captured them. Then you have young people like my my children. Um, I had a, I gifted a book to a 10-year-old and just absolutely loved it. I mean, gave me just a rave uh review <laughs> of what of what he resonated with the book. So I think the audience is hard to, hard to um, pin. I do think that people who are, you know, who are saying, yo, I'm, I'm, I'm wayward in my thinking. I'm unorthodox. I want to get some a permission to live the life I want to live. And this book generally gravitates towards those folks, finds, finds its way into the hands of people who are looking for their unique path in the world. Just for anyone who hasn't picked it up yet, the, the, the heading in here in the book, I'm holding it in my hand right now, is this is, parentheses, not a self-help book. So we're both, 
we're kind of writing a line there intentionally saying it is and it's not. And we do that with a couple things. We also, a page later, we say this book is, and then in parentheses, not about making money doing what you love. Um, <laughs> and so that's another one, right? It's like what we're trying to, I think, acknowledge with each of those is um, is these lines that we're kind of dancing on. And they, they, um, they can be thin lines at points. But in terms of self-help, you know, on the one hand, like, it's beautiful. Why would we, what, what else, what better reason to put pen to paper and to have books printed than to help ourselves and each other be, be better, be more whole, be happier. And on the other hand, I think a lot of times self-help books fall into this trap of playing into a false notion of a meritocracy in our society. It's like, you just need to be a little better. You just need to hustle a little harder. There's nothing wrong with any of these systems that are going on around you. It's just you. Hmm. Why don't you have a better a daily routine? You know, and it's like, they ignore a lot of the the more collective challenges. So I think what we were trying to do is say, there's a lot of collective challenges. If we're if we're going to um, work on ourselves, we have to do that in community. And at the same time, we're not just tossing up our hands and saying, well, the system isn't perfect, so nothing I can do, nothing I should do, nothing I want to do. We're saying, how do I move that piece in the world that's important to me? How do I feel more whole? How do I take the things that I'm passionate about, the, the things that wake me up every day, um, the goals I have, the things I like to make and make work that matters? Um, so if that's self-help, let's let's help ourselves. If that's collective help, let's help each other. Um, but that's the mission that we're trying to move. And I think it just dances on that line. Mm. I love the way you guys answer that question. You say in the book, to hustle is to refuse to accept one's current conditions um, and I, I looked up a few definitions of, and it's, it took me down a rabbit hole thinking about other scholars that I've, uh, I know who've done some work thinking about hustle and how it relates particularly to young people today. Um, but, but the thing about audience that I loved is that I, it's very rare. You come across a book where you feel like, you know, this, if it was picked up by, a six-figure engineer in Silicon Valley or a 16-year-old um, kid who is, you know, going to Westside High School in Newark, uh, where, near where I live, like either of those audiences, this, this could be extremely meaningful for. And you don't, you know, you don't read a lot of books like that. Um, so I love that, that what you're saying about what it is and isn't being a sort of um, dynamic that exists not only in who it's for, but also how it kind of uh, how it reads and what the intentions of some of the the activities of the book are. You two are both educators, but you both come from informal, you know, prior to your work at Stanford, you come from informal education contexts. And uh, Tunde, I know you're a coach. Sam, I know you've taught in um, a lot of lot of different sort of alternative systems over time. Um, I, I wonder if you think teaching creative hustle at Stanford would have been in the cards had you not worked with learners that you both have earlier in your career. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the thank you, Mark. First of all, thank you for you know. Um, all your questions, I could, I could, I could tell you wrestle with a lot of these concepts as you read it. That's a profound compliment to say that this book can be read by you know a high school student or 
you know, a, um, you know, a, a six-figure software engineer, as you put it. Uh, it's a powerful compliment. So thank you. Um, I just want to shout out and recognize, and I got excited from your question because it gives me a chance to shout out and recognize all of the students and communities that we got to serve. And oftentimes the narrative is that those students won because we were in the position of instructor. But as you pointed out, we won. We got refined. We got changed. Our character got developed. Our ideas got codified in that process to the point where now we're able to share them. And yes, it is a result of all those communities and classrooms and programs that we got to be a part of that made that created the opportunity. I just wanted to, I just wanted to, to call that out. And I also want to call out that I think, you know, and I want to appreciate Sam for his vision in this, because as the director of the K-12 lab at Stanford University, he sought out and recognized, and I'm sure Sam, you can speak to this later for how you came to that conviction. He sought out saying, I want Street Code Academy. That's a nonprofit across the freeway. That wasn't going to give Stanford University any credibility in the eyes of academia. That wasn't going to give Stanford University an extra credential or, or like that was because he knew the value that this community can bring to a Stanford University. And what happened from that came, wow, a guide that could speak to the diversity of, of, of people and journeys that you spoke to. That's a result of bringing together diverse communities from different perspectives. And often the ones that get left out aren't the Stanford University ones, right? We're on here because Stanford University D School is the center of innovation. But in reality, um, you know, there's so much that Street Code Academy brought to the process. There's so much that that community of East Palo Alto brought to the process. There's so many, like that's, that's that punk, that's that hip hop, that's the value in that. And obviously Sam has a lot of understanding about the value in that he, he's, you know, built a career on that. So Sam, I'd love to hear what you have to say. I just want to, first of all, echo everything you just said. And I mean, I think, you know, Tunde and I share an, an experience of going to a prestigious institution that, you know, for undergrad, that's kind of very well respected, that whole thing for me, you know, for Tunde, that was Stanford. Um, for me, that was on the other coast. I went to Brown University. And um, I, I had another 15 years after graduating that I was in Providence in a, in a somewhat similar capacity to Tunde doing. Um, I mean, I, I, I feel as I said that I kind of shuddered because I, I don't I don't want to even compare myself to what you've built Tunde and in the time you've been, you know, in this area post graduating. I have such deep respect for it. But I just what I mean to say is <clears throat> working at much, much smaller organizations and um, much of that time. Uh, with with young folks who have been really cut off from from a lot of the resources that were so abundant at Brown. And so I think coming into this role at an institution like this at this point in my life and career, it felt it fe felt and feels incredibly important to me to uh, to 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 bridge those worlds the right way or as close to the right way as I can, because part of what I experienced over the years working with young people in Providence was there was ways that the institution wanted to engage with quote unquote, the community, hmm. uh, that were pretty extractive in, in many cases. Um, you know, 
bring in some some local young folks as like some form of kind of experience for the students. But it was clear that the real kind of customer, the real student in, in the mind of the institution was the tuition paying um, student there. And everything else was sort of for the benefit of that audience. And that always frustrated me. And I always felt disappointed by that because I think that there's as much brilliance flowing through the young people that I was working with in the juvenile prison in Rhode Island um, and in South Providence as there were in my classrooms when I was an undergrad or beyond that at Brown University. So coming here, it's like, how do we honor that? And how do we do that in as close to the right way as possible? And that's something that Tunde and I have connected on and started talking about before we even conceived of this class was Mm -hmm. like, how do we, how do we collaborate in a way that's, that's authentic, that honors everyone involved, that adds real value for everyone involved. Um, And, you know, I, I I don't want to suggest we have that all figured out, um, I think that's something we'll iterate on for the rest of our careers, assuming we, we continue to bridge these institutions. Um, but part of what you're seeing here, even in the language in the book, in the conception of Creative Hustle, in the way that the class was structured that Junde was just talking about, is us reaching for that, trying to reach across these worlds that can feel so distant and um, connect them in, in those sorts of ways. I'm always curious how co-authors meet what, what what was that meeting for you two where where was the um sort of what was the genesis of the class at stanford and how did you realize that the two of you were good partners well that i mean <laughs> how do you realize with, with two are good partners that that took some time i'm i'm still uncovering uh even this podcast is an opportunity for me to learn more about my brother and and the more i learn uh mark i'm happy to say the more I admire um, and appreciate the friendship and brotherhood that we built. And so it started out obviously not as deep as it is now, um, but it had a very clear, the, the memory I'm thinking about was, you know, a session that took months in the making, right? We had, we have a friend, Frederick Alexander, um, who I'm close to known for 20 years, met Sam really vibe with Sam, you know, instantly, just around his background and his perspective and said, y'all have to connect. And so it took us a while to really sit down and connect. We met in passing and we would vibe, but really to sit down and to connect and hear the heart of Sam, I was really um, honored to be a part, right? Because I think, you know, we got down on the whiteboard and said, how could we build? It was his intention. I credit his, you know, sort of persistence and vision of what Stanford could gain in the relationship with, the organization I'm a part of. And he asked, like, what could we do? And I'm very protective to make sure, like, yo, if we're going to do something, it has to be a benefit, at least in my eyes, to the community that we're serving, right? So what kind of access could we do? And he was, you know, he even beat my expectation because I just wanted, we said, if we do a class together, can we have a, my question was, could we have a few of our students come to Stanford? Stanford University is very elite for those of you that don't know in in, in, in the academia world, in the area of innovation, in the area of tech, like Stanford is, and, and across many areas, Stanford is, you know, the premier institution. A lot of money, a lot of limited access, very prestigious and very selective. And so many of our students don't get in. To ask for a few spots, I've been around Stanford for 30 years, to ask for, or for 25 years, to ask for a few spots is asking for a lot. But Sam said, yo, let's do it half and half. There was a hundred and some students that applied for our class from Stanford. And despite that, 
Sam restricted 15 of the 30 spots for our students. Hmm. So I knew off top that Sam valued our community in ways that really floored me. That was the start of how we met. We did the class. The class really popped off. Um, and then when when Stanford, Stanford D School was asked to write these books, you know, we were very, very honored to have, you know, Scott Dorley reach out to Sam and and offer um, by way of, uh, you know, by way of that entire team. Uh, shout out to Charlotte and and Sarah and, and the whole just D School team who thought that our class could be a part of the series. And then Sam and I went on a journey, one year journey, writing the manuscript, another six months putting art together. And, you know, and now we're now we're putting the book out in the, in the world and trying to think about new ways to work. Um, so that's how we met. And that's how we're working together. Sam, what did what did he miss? Ha, not, not much. I mean, I mean, I think just tapping back into this this connection that we've been talking about, um, I think if I'm remembering my chronology right, Tunde, I think the first thing we did together was that workshop where we brought a whole bunch of education philanthropists over to Street Code. And we, I think that was before we taught Creative Hustle. And, you know, we had similar conversations around that. So Mark, just a, the quick background, we had like maybe 30 um, education philanthropists come in to get a training in design. Mm. And I had reached out to Tunde and said, could we bring them over to Street Code? And is there any way they could be helpful to you all? Because they have this national perspective. They've seen all these education programs all over the place. Mm. And, you know, it was through some of those conversations, if I recall correctly, Tunde, that I started to hear your hesitancy to, you know, your, like the protectiveness you talked about a minute ago, like you were like, yeah, maybe like I'm uh, folks showing up with clipboards and kind of like observing our community that we've built at street code is not really like Stanford's trying to do that all the time. And, and, and I really related to that because of my earlier experiences I talked about a few minutes ago. So for me, hearing the way that you navigated that and you didn't shut it down. We did it right. We did it together, but we tried to do it again. We tried to do it the right way where it was really going to have a benefit for the street code community. And so I think for me, that built a level of trust and a level of connection that was like, this is someone who shares my both concerns about these kind of relationships um, between, you know, communities and institutions and also doesn't let that concern stop him which is what happens for so many of us. And that was like very appealing to me. Like I want to work with people like that who mm. have all the critical sensibility, but that doesn't become the reason we never do it. Right. We still got over there with the grant makers and afterwards we talked and you were like, yeah, I think we missed in a couple of ways. <laughs> like it was cool and a lot of great stuff happened and you know, da da da. And also like there was these moments that didn't feel like what they should feel. And, and to me, that was like, that's somebody that I can work with and mm. we can keep going back. We can keep going back at it because We'll be honest with each other where we come, you know, where it comes up short of what we had intended um, and we'll we'll keep pushing ourselves and each other. So I don't think about that a lot in the creative hustle story. And Mark, I want to thank you for kind of bringing that back to my mind and heart in terms of just us us thinking about where this really came from, um, because I do think that 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 was a key part of it. Thanks, Sam, for sharing on it. The two groups of people that you brought together for that event. Um. One, a group of education philanthropists who, by nature of the fact that they're philanthropists, uh, hustled at a certain point in their life and had all this potential sort of realized to a point where now they are uh, in philanthropy and and trying to contribute to that system. The young people in the program have all of that potential in them. And... Uh, are are sort of ready to unleash all of that. 
but yet the the places of these two groups are totally different. Adults in a professional context who are being sort of shown around by Stanford and these young people, the places are just the the moment in their lives are totally different. But when you brought them together, were there elements of creative hustle that you re- that they realized together? they had in common. One one important thing I need to point out is that um, street code is not just young people as students. It's mm. all ages. And it's such a brilliant aspect of the program that I, I just have loved and admired since the first time I set mm. foot in a, a street code space is like seeing students really of all ages. And you got teachers of all ages too. So you just have this really intergenerational community in a beautiful mm. way. Um, the the thing um, that that comes to mind for me as kind of the and I don't think it's a direct answer to your question about common creative hustle mark, but mm. there was a moment that happened by accident that was really powerful. Um, and we we were one of the facilitators that was working with us is, was named Daryl. And Daryl, we had scheduled to use some space at Street Code to do an activity called the Paseo. Um, which we did not create. We learned it, I believe, from the National Equity Project. And that you can find if you if you look up Paseo, P-A-S-E-O protocol online, you can find a whole written out explanation of what it is and how to facilitate it. Um, but it's basically people standing in circles and rotating kind of uh, two circles facing each other and rotating yeah. and having conversations. And we had intended to just do it with the grant makers while we were waiting to, to get welcomed into a street code activity. Hmm. But the way it worked in the big room that street code had at the time there was a bunch of like street code community members there. And so this was not the plan, but we, we ended up doing it as a total mix. Hmm. Um, and then after that, we moved into what we had planned, which were these more one directional interviews of the grant makers interviewing the street code students. And the, the big reflection was that the accidental Paseo together, which was all one-on-one, all mixed conversation, all each person talks for two minutes and then rotates was a much more powerful uh, learning experience and felt much better to everyone involved than the like, I'm gonna sit here with the list of questions. And the questions were were intended to be really thoughtful in terms of issues of power, you know, some of the dynamics you were just describing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we were, we had bought copies of um, Creative Reaction Labs, equity-centered community design field guide or handbook for for all the participants. We had talked a lot about how you show up in a space and how you ask questions. So it wasn't like done, in this super like unintentional, obnoxious way, but still it was so different when the grant makers shared their two minutes, you know, when everyone was kind of interviewing everyone equally as opposed to this kind of one way thing that started happening. Mm. So that's one of the really powerful, like specific memories I have. And it was just a huge lesson for me that was like, um, why did we even think we would do the Paseo just with the grant makers and then do these interviews in this way? Why didn't we, why didn't we plan it the way that it ended up happening? And, you know, kudos to, to everyone involved, Daryl, Tunde, and there was other folks at Street Code who kind of saw the potential in the moment and flexed and, and changed the plan to, um, to facilitate it that way. Ariel also, who works with us at the D school, there was a bunch of folks there that kind of saw it and made it happen. Um, but yeah, Tunde, I'd love to hear if you have other thoughts, maybe more directly responding to Mark's question around common creative hustle. Uh, I think I think one of the common threads of this creative hustle book um, has been centering whose lives, whose journeys, whose perspectives get to be, you know, upheld as 
valuable. And I think what we've always done, even that Paseo exercise mm -hmm. was like, it's centering, hey, you know, just because you come over here, you know, with, with the backing of a foundation, with money, because just because you have, you know, this degree from this, just because you have access to this, doesn't make you more valuable mm. than somebody who has experience in this and accomplishments in this and, you know, perspectives in this way, right? And so what we've, what we've done, I think, just by the mere fact that we've done it in a way, again, we're, we're still learning, but what we attempted to do and what we, in our learning, what we attempted to do was to try to like, yo, let's create even ground. Right. So, you know, by us having 50, 50 participation in the class, it never felt like one of the things that we were really struck by when we did the class of half street code, half Stanford was no one could tell who's who, like it, it, <laughs> you lost, you lost track of like, you know, Oh, shucks. Who is, who does that? Like, we're all, we kind of blend. And, and that is, a, I think, a powerful thing when you center. And so in this book, you can't, no one knows who graduated from what, you know what I mean? Like the most inspirational chapters to me, I happen to know some of these folks don't have the degrees, don't have the credentials, you know? And so it's like, but they, but their journeys are the ones that move us. Their journeys are the ones that inspire us. Their journeys are the ones that we're looking to, um, to emulate. So, I think that's one of the things that happened, you know, that we, you know, they came to street code, right? Like you came to our turf. We're the ones kind of in charge. We know what's going on. That was one area where, you know, that we were able to stand on our two feet and say, stand with some confidence. And so I think by centering who's got the mic, who's got the, you know, who's got the credibility, who's got the knowledge. I think being aware of that is one thing we've done. Yeah. That's actually works out to be a better segue than I anticipated because one of the things I, I appreciated about the book is for some reason I described it in my notes. I took notes in the margin of the book. And as I got to the second or third profile, so the book profiles creative hustlers, and I just wrote museum experience in the right. And so the reason I, I wrote it in the margin, because I felt kind of like if there was a museum for creative hustle, the book kind of with these profiles ends up being the museum experience I would want, right? Because mm. you look at some books and it's about engineers or it's about um, amazing artists, mostly who have made it. You don't hear about the million talented artists who don't get the book, right? But this felt like the museum experience I would want because it's about the process and it's about how the process brings these gen this genius together, Um so I love that about it. So if anybody's looking for a, you know, like a museum of creative hustlers that you can hold in your hand, I think the book is great for that. But what I wanted to ask you to just to paint a picture for listeners about who we think of when we think of creative hustlers outside of those profiled in the book, who are some of the the who are some of the folks like what's a creative hustle you've been introduced to recently um, that inspires you and, and might mm. help to characterize what we mean by creative hustle for people who haven't read the book yet. That's a, that's a good question, Mark. Go ahead, Sam. <laughs> Wait, it's a two-parter though, right? So one is like who that's not in the book. Do we, are we feeling inspired by in terms of their creative hustle? And the second part is 
Maybe maybe can you say the second part again, Mark? That's, I the, make sure that's you... the whole thing. Like it, oh, okay. it might it might be about the who, but it might also just be about the hustle. You're like, yo, I don't know who this kid is, but mm. uh, you know, he had oh. an amazing. Well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that brought to mind. You said that. I, that brought to mind someone who I haven't studied super in depth, so I'll I'll, I'll go light on it. But our our brother our brother and friend and colleague Isaac Yule has been sending Tunde and me a steady diet of La Russell clips. Mm. Um, who's a, a hip hop artist out of California, young and really um, taking on business models and thinking about how musicians these days can and should. Um, kind of make money, market their work, all that stuff. And so the clips Isaac's sending, some of them are are music, but a lot of them are him actually speaking about his business approach. And mm-hmm. so um, everyone, he has like a caption in the message he sends us that's like, you have to feature him. And a lot of it is about how he's marketing and spreading his music um, and kind of his, his mentality around all that. So a lot of the clips, some of the clips are him actually um, – performing, but a lot of the clips are him talking about his work. Um, and I've been super impressed by everything he's saying. It reminds me in some ways of where I think where, um, Nipsey Hussle, rest in peace, you know, was going with some of like the creative, um, business model stuff he was doing about getting his music out at creative distribution. And then also like the community entrepreneurship that he was pursuing. Um, so that was just somebody who, who pops to mind, shout out to Isaac for, for pushing and, you know, making sure we know, uh, about his work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Tunde, who comes to mind for you? I get that response uh, a lot saying when we run against people and people are saying, you know, man, they, if you're going to do another creative hustle book, they need to be in it. And I think the the creative part, we never got a chance to really speak to this. And I think this may be a right time to introduce like how we've seen creative hustle, right? And creative is that imagination. Um, creative hustle, we, we've we've defined in two other words, imagination plus action and that imagination right that creative is that it's it's thinking about things so out of the box thinking about and challenging norms in such a progressive way that you just it's just you know it's 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 aspirational it's in the clouds it's it's um it's never been done before and then the action is like how are you stepping on this every day like how are you moving forward in a real way to actually move it. Not, it's not just talk, it's, it's, it's walk. And so that's creative hustle. And so we, we, you know, the same way Isaac um, is sending us messages like, yo, this is the definition of creative hustle. We could easily point out Isaac as a creative hustle, you know, who's, <laughs> who's making it, you know, who's, who's, who's taking on life with such ambition, but then every day moving towards this. So I don't know. I mean, I, I there's a lot of folks that come to mind when I think about who's a creative hustle. I'm thinking about a young fellow in here um, named Tito who got an organization called Chase Love. He started when he was 15 years old, um, you know, and 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 he himself struggled with with, with being unhoused with him and his family. Um, there's a, you know, I, I run across these folks every day who, to me, I'm like, you're the embodiment of it. Like you, every day you're trying to step closer to this incredible dream of like making the world you want to see. Um and I'm just inspired. So I'm glad we got a word for it. You know, it's, it's, there are creative hustlers. Yeah. I love that. And, and so many other people are coming to mind as, as you speak. Um, so one being Angel Newman, who was a student of mine when she was 13 and has taken over 
the organization where where we first met uh, yeah. AS220 and Providence. And when I say wow. taken over, I mean with with everyone's blessing, like, you know, it, it you know, but has has moved through through that organization wow. and is continuing to be a practicing artist and to get into real estate and to work in higher ed. And just seeing the way she's merging all those pieces and having them actually feed each other has been mm. really powerful and inspiring to me. Um, Adrian Marie Brown is another who stands out to me. She's constantly she's putting out books helping us think about how to address, you know, deal with nonprofit management type stuff, you know, emergent strategy. Mm -hmm. She's putting out um, speculative fiction collections. She's putting out, you know, doing these series, you know, series is for folks online. She's writing her own fiction. Um, so that would be like another person who I'm just always like, I, I never know which way her name is going to pop up in my feed next. Yeah. Um, same with Eve Ewing, by the way, Com writing comic books, I think with Marvel, uh, poetry collections, um, writing, you know, incisive books about K-12 education in this country, being a professor, like all this stuff happening, uh, hosting a podcast, you know, all this stuff happening at kind of, I don't know if it's at the same time, but, you know, and it's all kind of feeding, um, you know, each, it, all, each piece is feeding the other pieces, or at least that's how, that's how it lands for me. So there's so many people that I, that I, I'm inspired by on that front and would love the chance, whether it's through another book or, or some sort of ongoing series or whatnot to continue to, to profile folks and continue to expand all of the different types of hustles, right? In the, in, in the current book, we talk about artists, but we also talk about activists. Hmm. Um, we talk about chefs and we talk about politicians. Like part of what we're trying to do is remind folks that, uh, you know, the traditional definition of what is a creative might be too narrow. Um, but I think we could keep going even further um, to to continue to expand that. So um, thank you for the question and would love your answers too, Mark. And anyone listening, like hit us up on social media and tell us who you are inspired by, because that is how we've met so many of the folks that we're now um, talking to, talking about, et cetera. Love that, Sam. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Mark. Yeah. I mean, I have... I have my own list uh, just that that has been running in my head and it's a similar a similar um, mix of people I admire who I haven't met and students and um, you know there there are some but uh, but I want to stick with your list because uh, I don't want to dilute I'm gonna put links to anything that those those that you mentioned Tito uh, Chase Love, all of all of the folks that just got mentioned, I'm gonna put all the links in the show notes and make sure that people have an eye to them. And and uh, I have plenty of time on this show to to blather about my my heroes, but <laughs> I I love yours. So, all right, I'm I'm we're running short on time, so I want to make sure we get to this question. I'm gonna ask it, and then I'm gonna give you some some data to think about while you're thinking about the answer. So the subtitle of the book is "Blaze Your Own Path and Make Work That Matters." Do you two think that students now care more about work that matters than before? And I'll give you some some data. And this conversation is one that I'm having with with other with lots of folks who are realizing that there's something happening in this generation. Um, but one of the things I put in our notes is that I saw this uh, Gallup data. Um, that stated 21% of employees globally reported being engaged at work, 
very positive way of saying that 80% of employees globally <laughs> are not engaged in their work. Um, 33% of employees thriving in their overall well-being. Um, so I, I, ask, I ask you again, um, do you two think that students care now more about what work that matters than they did before? Well, first of all, thank you for that statistic. Don't don't be shocked if it if you hear us quoting that on <laughs> I don't know other podcasts or wherever else we might be popping up because I think it's really relevant to what this whole book the beyond the book what what this work is about. Um, I'm gonna I think I might quote our colleague Scott Dorley who Tunde shouted out a little earlier who's totally instrumental especially if anyone is enjoying the design the visual design, physical design of the book. Um, but beyond that, way up in the content too, Scott has been just incredibly influential in this process and supported us in, in, in a huge number of ways, as well as Jen Brown. But Scott just said to me the other day, something along the lines of, and I apologize, Scott, if you are listening to this and if I misquote you at all, but basically the spirit of it was, there used to be, uh, you know, the focus used to be making things. I think we were kind of talking about design and product design in particular. The focus used to be making things. Now it's making things that matter. The focus used to be making things. Now it's about making things happen. Mm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. I think he's responding to exactly, I don't know if he saw the exact Gallup poll that you're, you're quoting, Mark, but I think he's responding to what you're raising there, which is folks not being satisfied with just adding another object to an object cluttered world, but saying, how do I actually how does what I make make an impact, make the world a more just place, a happier place, a healthier place, right? People may have very defi different definitions of what any of those words mean or pick one that resonates more than the others. Um, I definitely feel that the students that I'm engaging with, that's what they're here to do, wherever here is, right? Um, I, I definitely feel, and maybe it's the nature of the classes that we're, we're offering that that attract those students. So I don't want to have like kind of a false positive there. Maybe there's a lot of students who aren't thinking that way, but the students who step through the door for any workshop, institute, course uh, that, that we're offering, I feel like they're, they're hyper-focused on that um, and almost allergic to making things or doing work that they mm. don't feel is contributing in one of those ways. Yeah, you know, my, my, my answer I don't think is is – you know, I don't think the answer uh, that you might expect, because for my lifetime of work, and this is anecdotally, this is not statistically or big data. This is just from my experience. Right. I have been surrounded in every instance with people who are extremely engaged in their work and care about work that matters. And I think what that does, you know, in the context of society is again give a shout out to communities that are often overlooked when i'm working I've, I've worked in communities of color from the time you know i've been you know time i, I was born like I, that's just what i've been a part of churches and community organizations and families who care about making their community better because that's what i think a lot of communities a lot of values inside these communities push right i think what's happened in society if i was to opine on that is that now society is catching up and seeing that that's actually valuable, you know, in living, right? And I think a lot of mainstream society might not have seen that, 
I think about Andy Crouch's book that I just read. Um, one of my favorite authors, Andy Crouch, his book, recent book is called The Life We're Looking For. And he he basically describes, and he's had a lifetime of, uh, or he's had a, you know, decades of writing about how we interact with technology. And I think technology has been just expanding. It continues to do that. All this open AI right now with just what bots and things can do is showing us that, yes, we can make things to use that, to reference back to that quote. Yes, we could do a lot with technology, but really at the heart of what every human wants to do is to be recognized, to be in community, to be known and to be loved. And that's the life we're looking for. That many of the communities that I've served, that's what we've had to do. That's what we've had. And so we've, my, you know, we've had to pull back on not being engaged at work. Like, you know, when you're doing mission work or, or nonprofit work, m- many of us are so entrenched in the work. We got to talk about, you know, practices that pull us away from work because we're so engaged. This is, it's life work on, on many times the, the people that I've worked on. So I just want to just encourage folks again, that people in these communities are kind of progressive and setting the path. We may call them punk. We may call them hip hop. We may call them marginalized, but in reality, these are the progressive leaders that are showing us a new way of living. And I've experienced that, right? It hasn't come with a lot of money, hasn't come with a lot of clout, but it's come with a lot of meaning and it's come with a lot of purpose. And now we're realizing, man, that stuff actually has some value. Um, it's something I've just been fortunate to benefit from, from, you know, the students I've worked with for decades. You know that, you know what I was thinking, uh, do that minute when the last song on the record plays, you just get static. And if the song was good, you just kind of listen to the static for a minute. Cause like, let's sink in. Yo, yeah, I, <laughs> I kind of wish I had like, sometimes you get an answer to a question and you wish you had that, like, I'll just play that static for a second. So people can like really listen to that answer. Oh, Cause sure. I think, yeah. I think it's a, oh. a beautiful way to think about it. Um, last question I'm going to ask you to, I, I feel like the script changes constantly and here i am talking about young people um uh especially we're talking about street code academy is a great place to start today like um i feel like young people hear one script uh where they're like where adults are saying oh you got to learn to code because that's those are the skills that are gonna you know yield the kind of impact and happiness and the kind of life uh, you're looking for, and then other people are saying like, "Oh, you got to stick with um, this set of skills," and it's all about uh, professional professionalism in this box. So the script changes, and I feel like we do young people a disservice by sort of pulling them all over the place into skills that sometimes have a short shelf life. And um, I-, I wanted to ask the two of you because you both work with young people in different contexts. Um, when a young person comes to you or a family, even better yet, like parents approach you, I'm sure, and say, I just want the best combination of like skills and dispositions for my young person. Um, from the perspective of two people who put together Creative Hustle and have a certain set of values that come out of this book, what's your response to that family member at this moment in time where families are like questioning the cost of college and um, like what, what is the right combination of skills? Do, do we just all need like creative hustle and this many AP classes or <laughs> what does it look like? Yeah, I love that. I think the world's happening so fast 
I love how you said it, man. The script changes. Our four kids, they're all different. They're all going to respond to a particular moment differently. Moments change. So there's no way to really write a script. There's no really to there's no way to really predict. I'm a parent. So I'm dealing with that. You know, I'm a professional. I deal with that every day, right? So let's let's acknowledge that there's change. Let's acknowledge that there's no one way. We're coming off a three-year pandemic. Nobody planned for this. Nobody knew what we were doing. We're still trying to figure it all out. We don't know the implications. Like, I think there's some wisdom in just acknowledging that we don't we don't know the script. We don't, don't know what's going on. And so I think for us, we've tried to not be prescriptive. I think this book, you know, Sam talked about the, you know, this book is this and not this. You know, it's it's we've we've tried to really play inside the reality that it's there's not one way that we could just tell you, you know, there's not one way to define creativity. There's not one way to define a creative hustler. Like, let me show you profiles of nine different ones, hoping that you can find pieces of this journey that relate to you. So what, what does that mean for Strico? That means for Strico, we try to do two, you know, we try to do three things. First of all, we recognize there's a gap between communities of color and the innovation economy. There's a gap between, you know, our gifts and our goals. There's a gap between where we are now and where we want to go. Like that's the reality. And the question that that family member is asking is, how do I bridge that gap? How do I get to where I want to go? And in Strico, we have three things. We call it mindsets, skills, and access. You need to think a particular way. You need to have a way, whether it's, uh, I want to have a mindset that knows the possibilities, whether it's a mindset that I have an identity in innovation, whether it's a mindset that my perspective has value. Those are those mindsets are long, but they're important to start with that. Then there are skills to get you to the next phase. And lastly, you can have the mindset and skills but we do need access. We do need people to, you know, bridge us to different opportunities. We do need people to provide us tools, resources, finances, et cetera, to be able to, to fully connect to the possibilities. And we've thought about it the same way with Creative Hustle, right? We call it principles, people, and practices. But again, I think there's a common thread between the way in which we started with, like, let's be principled. Let's know what we want to do. Let's start with the making matters work as opposed to let's start with the skills or let's start with where the jobs are at. Let's start with what's prescriptive or what Facebook is looking for. Google is looking for. No, let's start with some principles and then we can move from there and maybe pop on some skills. Those things will change um, in time. I love Aisha Curry's. It's the last thing I would say, but I love Aisha Curry's um, chapter in the book. And Aisha Curry has, has, um, you know, has a tattoo of a tree. And we we use that as an analogy to describe what she's shared with us, which is like her roots are, you know, the principles and her trunk, are, you know, uh, our roots are our family and her trunk are these principles and the leaves are the practices and things that she does. You can call them the skills that she's gaining and different seasons, those look different. And so I feel like you know, when when we give families like what are the skills right now that are going to help you get to the areas you, you need to go or or what do, with the information we know now, what skills do we need to be able to get there? That's fine. But know that those may change and those can change and will change. And and we can be flexible in this journey. So that's that's my answer. I hope it helps. Beautiful. Guys, I wish we had uh, another couple of days to continue recording because this is super fun. I am. 
really thrilled to introduce this book to anyone who doesn't know about it through the show, but I'm even more excited. Uh, I hope you don't mind to meet the two of you because I think uh, the work you're doing is, is just so important and uh, I'm, I feel honored and, and proud to share it. So thank you for being here and thank you for doing the work. Thank you for having Thanks, us. So Peace. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.